1: Welcome again to season two of Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast that looks at how Hollywood uses history to talk about today. I'm Leah Parody.
2: And I'm Brian Krim. In our first two episodes of the season, we looked at four TV series all about the Revolutionary War. In this episode, we're still going to look at the American Revolution, but in an entirely different genre, the musical. We're also going to travel a bit further back in time to appreciate the historical context of the first of our musicals, 1776, which was the Tony Award winner for Best Musical in 1969, and then was turned into a movie in 1972 with almost the same cast.
1: Then we're going to look at Hamilton which was first staged off-Broadway in 2015. Its creator, Lin-Manuel Miranda, worked on it for years, however, inspired by Ron Chernow's 2004 biography. And its release on the Disney Plus streaming platform in 2020 is what brings it under the definition required to be included in our podcast. Musicals, and straight plays for that matter, Distill and convey complex ideas and arguments through more abstract and metaphorical means. We are, after all, agreeing to suspend disbelief and allow ourselves to be transported from the confines of a stage and a proscenium arch to wherever the story takes us. And with a musical, we're also willing to have this happen
2: through song. The artistic license and use of metaphor can be potent and also telling because the broad brushstrokes playwrights depend on give us a window into the assumptions of the time. With this in mind, there are three lies agreed upon that underpin both 1776 and Hamilton, even though they seem so different and were created so many years apart.
1: First of all, we want to return to the myth of the noble, selfless, and wise founding fathers. But here, more than with our previous episodes, we really wanna talk about what the danger is of that historical lie. Not just that it's annoying because of its inaccuracy, but that it actually results in dangerous perceptions on the part of the American public. Secondly, that America's success was built on the ideals of elite whites instead of the labor of poor blacks and whites. And then finally, we want to look at the lie that America can now, 250 odd years later, just sit back and congratulate itself on a job well done with nothing that needs to be done to cultivate its continuity in the future.
2: Now it's time to recap our musicals. And I think it's a a fitting quote from Pauline Kael here to start us off with 1776, what could be worse than a folk operetta about the signing of the Declaration of Independence? The movie version. Maybe that's a little too harsh, <laughs> uh, but I think it's, it's I, I kind of went into it that way, but I changed my mind a little. Uh, 1776, the movie was released in 1972, and it was not the boffo box office hit the play had been three years earlier when it won the Tony for Best Musical. Uh, the music and lyrics were written by Sherman Edwards and that's inspired by a book by Peter Stone. Um, And both the play and the film were directed by Peter H. Hunt. On Broadway, as in Hollywood, the late 60s and early 70s saw weird juxtapositions of old and new guard. For example, Oliver won the Oscar for Best Picture in 1969, but it was sandwiched between In the Heat of the Night in 1968 and Midnight Cowboy in 1970. And on Broadway in 1969, 1776 beat out hair for the best musical. The plot
1: is simple. The Founding Fathers are at the Continental Congress in Philadelphia, which ran from May 8th to July 4th, 1776. It's hot. Everyone is dithering because it seems like a big deal to separate from Britain. John Adams is impatient to get things done, but is so disliked he can't persuade anyone. So Thomas Jefferson is recruited to write a declaration that everyone can be enthusiastic about. He does. There has to be compromise about slavery to get the Southern vote. There is. It gets signed.
2: The end. Yeah, So, but the context isn't quite so simple. The play and the movie both arrived during the Nixon administration, and the play arrived on Broadway a year after the violence of 1968 that was fueled by the two assassinations of King and Kennedy in the U.S., and then the Tet Offensive and the increased U.S. response in Vietnam. Now, virtually everything except two songs are played for laughs or sentimentality. Those that aren't are about slavery and the young dying in a war for a cause they don't fully understand.
1: Yes, and a play that pokes fun at the Founding Fathers might have seemed a bit cheeky and subversive in its day, but when we put it in the broader context of other movies and plays from the era that were commenting on the state of the nation, I mean, Hair and In the Heat of the Night were a couple we just mentioned, the low-stakes, light-hearted ribbing of 1776 actually comes across more as complacency and self-satisfaction. Perhaps the three years between the play and the movie Are why it succeeded on Broadway, but not in the cinema. More people's feelings about the country had
2: become complicated in that very short span of time. I found it, yeah, I think you're right. And I found it really interesting to read the reviews for the play, which was much beloved and lauded by the finest critics of the day, and then turn to the film reviews. And it's like, you know, what happens when you put a camera on the stage? You know, what's the big deal? But there's clearly a difference. Uh, This review in The Guardian is pretty harsh, but par for the course when you look at film critics' responses. So let me quote from The Guardian here. Most history flicks feature at least two of the following elements. Sword fights, explosions, gladiators, spies, pirates, cowboys, Nazis, heaving bosoms, cavalry charges, sex, intrigue, murder, torture, ridiculously large guns, and Henry VIII. Work out how to get all of those into one movie and your fortune is made. The Second Continental Congress, landmark of world history though it was, featured none of them. It was a group of men sitting in a stuffy room in Philadelphia arguing over details of policy. Not only have the makers of this film bravely attempted to turn this into popular entertainment, they've made it three hours long and a musical. Possibly this whole thing was some sort of money losing stunt like in the producers. Now that's a quote.
1: <laughs> now that's a quote. And, and also it's so funny because I, I actually did think of the producers
2: in this way before I read this quote. So that's pretty funny. So to be fair, I have to be honest here. I am not a fan of musicals and sort of dreaded doing this episode, but Leah made me eat my vegetables and uh, I do have a, a newfound respect for the genre I can even appreciate 1776, harsh reviews aside, uh, as a fascinating cultural atif- artifact from the period of upheaval uh, and until recently an unprecedented crisis in governance, you know, this whole late 60s era. And reading more about the play and actors like Howard De Silva, who plays Ben Franklin, that kept me interested as well and ready to expand my horizons a little bit.
1: Yes, Howard De Silva is a very interesting character because most people know him as this kind of jolly older actor, but he was actually um, blacklisted, and he was part of. Um, well, first he was part of Orson Welles's Mercury Theater Players, and then he was later blacklisted, and then you know came back into uh, a career again as an older actor, and so it's really interesting that uh, that. Most people would sort of remember him as this kind of jolly actor that we saw in everything when we were kids in the 70s. But he has this much more interesting um, um, background. But, but Hamilton, in stark contrast to 1776, has the opposite historical context. The musical as a genre was very different since 1776 debuted now, Hamilton wasn't the first Miranda musical to succeed on Broadway. He wrote the musical and le- the music and lyrics for In the Heights, which ran from 2008 to 2011 and won the Tony for Best Musical and which is out this summer um, as a movie. Uh, and we hope it has a better fate than the musical to movie uh, 1776, but it also has been um, getting some criticism that is along the same lines as stuff that we're going to be talking about uh, a little bit later. And In the Heights set up some of the things that we see even more so in Hamilton. The incorporation of contemporary music styles, hip-hop and salsa, was confounding to some reviewers at the time, but it was built into the plot and location, the predominantly Hispanic uh, Washington Heights neighborhood of New York City.
2: Yeah, and even I can appreciate that, you know, one of the most striking and disrupting things about Hamilton, which we're so used to now that it's worth reminding listeners about this, is that a hip hop musical about the founding fathers with a cast made up of almost entirely non-Caucasians had the potential to be an epic disaster or inadvertent comedic hit in exactly the same vein for as springtime for Hitler and the producers. But the play arrived in the last year of the Obama administration. This was a complicated time to be thinking about the principles that founded the nation and their legacies in contemporary America. A black man was president, but there was a sharp increase in racist rhetoric and actions in reaction to that fact.
1: Yeah, Democrats had won the White House two terms in a row with a black president, but his policies were not particularly progressive on immigration, on Guantanamo Bay, on a whole host of issues. And again, as we discussed before, before, racist, deadly events like the murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and Trayvon Martin in Florida, and the nine killed in the Emanuel AME Church by Dylan Roof in Charleston, all suggested that really little had changed
2: that's right. And you know, as we explained in episode one, uh, the Tea Party movement was recasting revolutionary era iconography for its own purposes. You now, much of it tinged with white supremacist ideology. And of course, the election of Donald Trump was widely understood to be the legacy of those earlier conservative trends. This is why Hamilton became so popular, in my mind. You know, as well as being a brilliant book, score, and lyrics, it was It was really a celebration of American ideals and a critique of the nation that hadn't lived up to them. This is why it was such big news that the newly elected vice president, Mike Pence, attended the show and that from the stage, the cast felt it was appropriate to castigate him. Let's play a clip of that because I think everyone remembers this moment. Vice
3: President-elect Pence, we welcome you and we truly thank you for joining us here at Hamilton and American Music. We really do. We, sir, we are the diverse America. You are alarmed and anxious that your new administration will not protect us, our planet, our children, our parents, or defend us and uphold our inalienable rights, sir. But we truly hope that this show has inspired you to uphold our American values and to work on behalf of all of us. This wonderful American story told by a diverse group of men, women of different colors, creeds, and orientations.
1: We'll also be discussing uh, in a bit the limitations of the play in terms of dealing with the role of blacks in colonial America, particularly in the context of having uh, discussed in our previous episode uh, the Book of Negroes. But having said that, we can't forget just how cataclysmic this moment is in the history of the representation of the founding fathers to have a musical or have a a play in this case a musical where all of these famous founding fathers of the nation are played by non-white actors And this, we really want to focus on, you know, sort of dwell on for a minute because it's hard to remember just how new an idea this was.
2: Yeah, it absolutely is stunning, that reveal. I mean, you you know, it's obviously going to happen, but when you actually see it, it is emotional and powerful. So here we have the moment when George Washington first appears on stage, a black man in Washington's customary blue and white uniform, You know, he strides powerfully from downstage to upstage center to the fanfare of the chorus. Here he comes. Here comes the
4: general.
3: Ladies and gentlemen. Here comes the general. The moment you've been waiting for. Here comes the general. The pride of Mount Vernon. Here comes the general.
4: Washington. We are outgunned. Outmanned. Outnumbered. I'm gonna need a right-hand man Can I be real a second for just a millisecond Let down my guard and tell the people how I feel a second Now I'm the model of a modern major general The venerated Virginian veteran Whose men are all lining up to put me up on a pedestal Writing letters to relatives embellishing my elegance and eloquence But the elephant is in the room The truth is in your face when you hear the British cannons go
1: And I can tell you now listening to that uh, again here uh, as someone who saw the show early on, the thrill of that cognitive dissonance, who you expect to see or what type of men you expect to see and who you see instead is uh, uh, quite incredible. And, and so this, the impact of having Black men playing George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, the impact of having these revolutionaries expressing their aspirations and frustrations through hip hop. You know, these choices in many ways conveyed the rejection of the established power structures in the 1770s and 1780s more effectively and in that more metaphorical way. Uh, that we talked about, that theater accomplishes probably more than anything else that we've looked at in these episode, in these episodes, and maybe more than any artistic depiction ever has. You know, we talked last uh, episode about how one of the things that's great in *Turn* is that you really get this sense of just how inexplicable this new these new ideas are to the old guard. And that, I think, is what really does get conveyed in Hamilton by having those new ideas conveyed uh, through uh, a music genre that you don't expect to find when you walk into a Broadway theater.
2: Let's break down each musical individually and dig deeper into how each chooses to portray the founding fathers. Uh, We might as well go chronologically. So let's start with 1776. Our first lie agreed upon, extending back to the first episode on TV series, is that the founding fathers were noble, selfless, and wise. I think the impression we get from 1776 is that that these guys were ripe for parody, albeit in an an affectionate manner. John Adams was abrasive, we know this, Ben Franklin is rather full of himself and had a dirty mind. We know this too. And George Washington, who is never on screen, uh, is sort of a humorless downer who can only deliver bad news. And we see that in some of the other series like uh, Turn and uh, even John Adams, even. But it's probably Thomas Jefferson who gets demystified the most. Played by the hunky Ken Howard. Jefferson has to be dragged, kicking and screaming to his desk in order to write the Declaration of Independence. And the only way he can cure his writer's block is to get laid. So Adams and Franklin send for (laughs) Martha Jefferson, an impossibly young Blythe Danner, but not before praising his sexual combustibility. And I think think we just have to play a little bit of that song because it's really sort of ridiculous in a fun kind of way.
3: Mr. Adams, leave me
0: alone.
2: Mr. Jefferson.
4: Mr. Adams, I beg of you. I've not seen my wife these past six months. And we solemnly declare that we will preserve our liberties being with one mind resolved to die free men rather than to live slaves. Thomas Jefferson, on the necessity of taking up arms, 1775, magnificent. Why, you write ten times better than any man in Congress, including me. Now then, sir, will you be a patriot or a lover? A lover. No. But I burn, Mr. A. So do I, Mr. J. You? You
3: do. John, sure.
4: who'd have thought it? Mr. Jefferson, dear Mr. Jefferson... I'm only forty-one. I still have my virility, and I can romp through Cupid's Grove with great agility. But life is more than sexual combustibility.
1: So we're seeing this kind of bringing a, bringing a founding father down a peg. But as we have already mentioned, it's being done uh, in a kind of lighter hearted Gilbert and Sullivan uh, uh, kind of way. Peter Hunt reveals in uh, his review of the DVD release in in 2010 that something was actually on Richard Nixon's request uh, cut from the original version uh, because Nixon asked his friend Jack Warner to cut it. Do you remember that uh, comment, uh, Brian? What was it that he was referencing?
2: Yeah, it's in the song, Cool, Cool, Considerate Men, which does, I think you know it does show up in the movie, at least the one I saw. But this is when Pennsylvania delegate John Dickinson and his chorus of you know pompadoured, Brit-loving conservatives sing about... How the poor majority can be conned into supporting the privileges of the extremely wealthy, and so the line that Nixon didn't like was the following quote: "Don't forget that most men with nothing would rather protect the possibility of becoming rich than face the reality of being poor." So imagine being so just—I don't know—paranoid or or cynical that you you wanted to strike that line out, and that maybe that tells you what the state of conservatism was like in not just. The 1970s, but it certainly foreshadows, I think, what Reagan would wind up believing as well. But I think let's let's uh, play some of that song if we can. I think it's a good. I mean, the fact that Nixon tried to nix it, <laughs> Nixon nixed it, is really telling. So let's <laughs> let's give it let's give it its due.
0: Mr. Hancock,
2: you're a man of property,
3: one of us. Why don't you join us in our minuet? Why do you persist in dancing with John Adams? Good Lord, sir, you don't even like him. That is true, he annoys me quite a lot, but still I'd rather trot to Mr. Adams' new gabot. Why, for personal glory, for a place in history? Be careful, sir, history will brand him and his followers as traitors. Traitors, Mr. Dickinson? To what? The British crown? of the british half crown fortunately there are not enough men of property in america to dictate policy perhaps not but don't forget that most men with nothing would rather protect the possibility of becoming rich than face the reality of being poor and that is why they will follow us to the rise right,
1: Of course, it holds up as such a great truth, even uh, even today. You know, it's remarkable uh, for its continuity. Commenting on the continuity in American conservatism uh, and how they work with white working class voters, and because you know, how often have political scientists noted the GOP's often very effective messaging, which is that you you too can be rich if you turn your back on labor and. and the old New Deal coalition, and Ronald Reagan certainly picked up this mantle from Nixon a decade later, and so you know perhaps Nixon was right to uh be nervous about such a bald faced um articulation of that entire um, strategy that the g o p uh has adopted so successfully
2: yeah it's it it's a good story too, I guess you know being a californian Nixon was Really, you know, had his finger on Hollywood, I think, and the old time producers. And he also really missed the, you know, missed the mark on how popular that film would be. And behind all that frivolity and sexual innuendo of 1776, though, it, there is the reality of a war tearing the country apart. So Imagine the state of the country in 1969 through 1972 when the film was released we might miss some of the references today, but I bet audiences then were hypersensitive to any allusion to the Vietnam war and free speech, uh, no matter how dressed up they were in colonial garb. For example, uh, the delegates are very aware of how putting their demands on paper is treasonous. And they're you know, rightfully so scared of doing so. Uh, the crown has declared, you know, that it's a death sentence in, in effect. This is something, um, John Adams believes is necessary and his opponent, John Dickinson, is very worried about. So in other words, you know, free speech and protest is threatened by a criminal executive authority and moderates want to back down and the rebels want to double down. Yes. And, and the
1: distance away of the fighting, uh, much like the distance of Vietnam from uh, from the United States, we sort of get that sense, too, because we're always getting these dispatches from, from Washington about how the fighting is going in Massachusetts, but that's a world away from steamy Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, it is a musical. And so obviously you can't be changing, you know, in a stage place, you can't be changing locations, but it does intrude on the, on the plot. When, when one delegate raises the very pressing question How can a country of two million stand up to a great empire? It's really hard not to think that people at the time would have been thinking about Vietnam versus the United States. But the most poignant reference to the war and just the concept of war in general, which takes us very nicely from the Revolutionary War that is what the musical is supposedly about, to the Vietnam War that's actually raging while the musical and the movie are, are being viewed is the very memorable song Mama Looks Sharp, which ends Act One. A courier comes with a message from the, the battlefield and he sings about his two closest friends shot and killed on the same day at Lexington. And he describes the final thoughts of one of those dying young men as his mother searches for his body. And it's really the only indication in 1776. And in some ways, it's one of the few indications in some of the more glossily packaged versions of the revolution that really gets At the idea that the price of freedom is very high that the price of fighting you know waging and hopefully winning this war is very very high and that its outcome is not uh guaranteed and who wouldn't imagine that this is intended to represent the tens of thousands of young men dying in vietnam calling out for their mothers and we'll we'll play a little bit of that here
0: Mama, hey mama, come looking for me. I'm here in the meadow by the red maple tree. Mama, hey mama, look sharp, here I be. Oh, look sharp Them soldiers they fired Oh, ma, did we run But then we turned round And the battle begun Then I went under I done. Hey, hey, mama,
2: look sharp! Yeah, that that song I think was the first moment when I actually started to really appreciate and pay attention to 1776 because I found it very moving, and it was a departure from the tone that you have. You know, that's set at the beginning with all these guys, you know, know, like frat brothers or something joking with Thomas Jefferson. But all of a sudden, the reality of of what they're doing and what the consequences of what they're doing come home. And so I, I did find it pretty touching, that scene and that song. Our second lie agreed upon is that America's success was built on the ideals of whites instead of the labor of blacks. That's not really challenged by 1776, as you can imagine, but there is an an exception. Slavery is the pivotal issue of Act Two, when the text of Jefferson's draft of the Declaration is being nitpicked almost to death. Adams tells Franklin, as he opposes South Carolina's demand that Jefferson's anti-slavery clause be stricken from the Declaration, Mark me, Franklin, if we give in on this issue, posterity will never forgive us.
1: Yes, and then we get one of the most famous uh, numbers from the show, Edward Rutledge, uh, the representative from South Carolina or delegate from South Carolina, who's played by the Broadway titan, John Cullum, who's probably really only known to most people as the restaurant owner, Holling Vancour from the TV show Northern Exposure, but I assure you has had a very long and very Uh storied career as a as a Broadway actor. He has a big, almost operatic area called molasses to rum that really brings the house down. In it, he doesn't so much defend his colony of South Carolina and the other Southern colonies for wanting to preserve slavery. What he actually does, which I think in the context of the late 60s and early 70s, what he actually does is he accuses the North of rank hypocrisy because it's New York and Boston merchants who are also prospering mightily from slavery through the triangle trade, transporting slaves from Africa and Caribbean rum to the North, among many other things. Uh, And so we'll listen to a little bit of that that number here.
3: Our Northern Brethren, Feeling a bit tender toward our slaves. They don't keep slaves. Oh, no. But they're willing to be considerable carriers of slaves to others. They're willing for the shilling. Oh, haven't you heard, Mr. Adams? Clink, clink. Glasses to rum. The slurs. Oh, what a beautiful waltz. You dance with us. We dance with you in molasses and rum and the slave. Who sail the ships out of Boston, laden with Bibles and rum Drinks a toast to the Ivory Coast. Hail Africa, the slavers have
2: come.
3: New England with Bibles
0: and Rome.
2: And I think it is a, a important point to note that in this period, it wasn't just the South profiting from slavery. And uh, the song is really – at first I was kind of uncomfortable listening to it It is just – you know, he's sort of doing an impression of a slave, I think, and but I get you know when you think about the context, however, um it is it is appropriate, and I can imagine the subtext of this being fairly obvious as, obvious to audiences, especially in an era when anger about the neglect of black communities in the north was actually spawning violent revolts.
1: absolutely, yeah, I think that that would definitely be what was coming into people's minds, you know the the images of uh of Detroit of the, the sort of barren wasteland of parts of New York that had not seen any kind of real attention and the poverty that Black communities were, were living in. Absolutely. So if we turn now to uh, back to Lin-Manuel Miranda and Hamilton, this is a story about America then, told by America now. And we like this quote because it captures really the whole idea behind Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast. You know, each film or series or musical that we discuss is a story about a historical period told from the perspective of another historical period. And so we just talked about how 1776 is a reflection of the Nixon and Vietnam War eras. So, what about Hamilton?
2: Yes, when we when we get to Hamilton, which debuted in 2015, the musical as an art form, I, I people tell me, had evolved considerably, considerably from something like 1776. Now, but what didn't change so much was a tendency to treat the founding fathers as noble wise, and selfless. Certainly academic historians took their shots and Americans were far more jaded about the mythology underlying this republic, but the founding fathers largely survived revisionism. What is so interesting about Hamilton is Lin-Manuel Miranda's insistence that Alexander Hamilton enjoyed the same treatment as the gang of three, Washington, Jefferson, and Adams. If they get mythologized, why can't he? Yes, it's
1: interesting uh, that uh, the desire is to kind of incorporate him into the generous treatment rather than critique all of them. As I, I get what you're you, what you're saying there, and I think that 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 is uh, definitely true. And of course, part of it, you know, the the reason why the founding fathers uh, keep surviving revisionism, I guess we want to say, is because. Uh, You know, there's still such a market for those, you know, books that could be used as a lethal weapon that you, you know, give to your dad on his birthday. Um, Now, we are not historians of the early republic, and so we want to make that clear. But we do appreciate those that are and who have thought very deeply about the implications that this blockbuster uh, musical has had on their corner of the historical profession. And so we do want to talk a bit about what some of the criticism has been because, you know, there's not a lot of point here uh, six years after its release and the craze of Hamilton to sort of reiterate all of the good things about it. We also want to look at how it is a cultural phenomenon of a particular moment and how even moving six years into the future from when it was staged, we can see how, as a country, where
2: we are evolving. Yeah, it's amazing how how quickly things change, even from 2015 to you know 2021. And I and this is the the shelf life of Hamilton is a good example of that. And we'll get a little more into that later on. But we do want to highlight a great book that gets to the heart of the issues we are touching on in this episode. Historians Renee Romano of Oberlin College and Claire Blonde Potter of the New School in New York capture this debate in a volume entitled Historians on Hamilton, How a Blockbuster Musical is Restaging America's Past. It's a collection of 15 essays by different scholars on the historical, artistic, and educational impact of the musical. And we will definitely link this book to our website that uh, and the section on this, this episode.
1: Yes. In, in one essay in particular, the City University of New York's uh, David Waldstriker and uh, University of Missouri's Jeffrey uh, Paisley argue that Hamilton continues a trend that we in some ways have actually already talked about, which is this founder's chic trend. We've got biographers like David McCullough, who we've talked about, Robert Chernow, who wrote the Hamilton uh, biography uh, that inspired Miranda, and they the kinds of things that they write are these character-driven, very nationalistic and patriotic and relatable histories of the founding fathers. And um, Interestingly, part of the move in this direction stemmed from what people saw as a dangerous hyperpartisan period in politics in the 90s and early 2000s, which is hilarious and quaint now if we're thinking of that as the uh, hyperpartisan era. But it also shows how we can draw a line between that and things like the manufactured culture war issue today of the 1619 project and critical race theory this idea of no 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 there's just these established narratives that should be told and that school kids should memorize and that's the kind of founders chic version and uh everything more complicated than that you know we need to to sort of leave aside
2: yeah i'm really curious to see how the founder chic evolves over the next generation of historical research, are we gonna are we ever gonna see biographies like that again, or are they just going to be used literally as weapons, throwing books at each other that are big and heavy, the ones we buy for our <laughs> our, our parents? Because it's uh, it's it's so different than that 1990s early 2000s period, and by a long shot. Uh, now I kind of think we want to talk a little about the process of of making Hamilton because I think it's really instructive and. It's a it's a rare thing to have a union of a trained historian's labor and a brilliant talent like a Lynn Manuel Miranda. Um, we should also mention here the the great director Thomas Kail. And so um, once the the musical is so very popular, a lot of people want to interview this team. And so we found a great uh, clip that has them discussing just the process of of translating a hefty uh, academic biography into this enormously popular musical and you know what are, how does that actually work? So let's let's get a little window into that process.
4: The best thing that's happened to me in my career was getting to meet Tommy Cale the week after I graduated from college really fun there's a lot of late nights and there's a lot of laughing and there's a lot of inside jokes but the end result is we're all making the same show and tommy applies that diligence to me and my writing and he applies it to david corns with his set and he applies it to andy blankenbuehler and his choreography and he's also just one of the smartest people i know what i found in Lynn is someone who was interested in digging in the same direction I was. If Lynn had a shovel and he was digging a hole, I would just go jump in the hole and start digging. And then at some point I'd say, what are we digging for?
0: It was always
1: marvelous working with uh, Lynn and Tommy because they both had such deep integrity and such deep respect for the history. It was very rare, I think, uh,
3: perhaps unprecedented for a biographer to be so deeply incorporated.
4: As a musical, I'm very proud of Hamilton, as it is uh, it's everything I know about writing musicals right now. Um, I hope to learn more and keep learning over the course of my career. Uh, As a piece of history, it's maddeningly incomplete. It's a jumping-off point. It's a drop in a bucket. It's a spoonful of ocean. My hope is that both Broadway continues to find new audience and that people go and seek out, in D.C., a national archive, in their own town, a historical society, um, find themselves wandering the stacks of a library. That would be enormously satisfying for all of us. We watch young people... Take Hamilton as a jumping off point for telling their own stories, um, for telling stories untold by their history books. By digging into the archives and finding that story that hasn't seen the light of day or a best-selling book or a play yet, but is waiting to be told. Um, the archives are full of them.
1: Yeah, and I have to say, listening to this, in one sense, I'm like, I'm sure you are too, like, why can't somebody do this with our books? Why don't why don't we get this attention? But uh but as great as it is to see something like Hamilton put history on center stage, so to speak, it does come at a cost. Our audiences is getting the, the full story. And we do not want to sound like the patantic historians who are saying, oh, but you left out this and you left out that and you simplified these things and you combined these two events into one. And that's not what we're really, we're wanting to, kind of get at. Again, going back to our lies agreed upon for this episode, what we do want to talk about is is something else that uh, has become a criticism of Hamilton. And it's this lie that America's success was built on these ideals, these political, philosophical ideals that were thought up by white men and that were so obviously the correct way to think about things that they then these ideals became the engine of success and progress for america instead of the labor of blacks and poor whites and and in the case of blacks you know unfree people and hamilton in in dealing with this lie kind of has a mixed record and we want to sort of talk about that a bit and turn to some
2: experts. Yes, in particular, William Hoagland criticizes both Chernow and Miranda for portraying Hamilton as an abolitionist who you know, favored the immediate and voluntary emancipation of the enslaved. Um, Hamilton was admittedly more progressive than others when it came to slavery, but Hoagland notes it's likely that he and his family owned household slaves. That probably is not surprising to anybody. Uh, Chernow and Miranda are downplaying this, as as you would imagine. Uh, But let's at least acknowledge the cognitive dissonance typical of the time. Hoagland writes that the biography in particular and the show give the, as he says, the false impression that Hamilton was special among the founding fathers, in part because he was a staunch abolitionist. Continuing that uh, satisfaction and accessibility pose serious risks to historical realism.
1: But the thing is is that there is in fact acknowledgement of the cognitive dissonance of Thomas Jefferson being this champion of the new free nation and being a slave owner. It's it's in fact s- central to the the back and forth of one of the, the debates between, uh, between Jefferson and, and uh, Hamilton.
4: Are you ready for a cabinet meeting? Huh? The issue on the table. Secretary Hamilton's plan to assume state debts and establish a national bank. Secretary Jefferson, you have the floor, sir.
3: Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We fought for these ideals we shouldn't settle for less. The wise words, enterprising man, quote 'em. Don't act surprise you guys, cause I wrote 'em. Ow, <laughs> oh, but Hamilton forgets. His plan would have the government assume state debt Now place your bets as to who that benefits. The very seat of government where Hamilton sits. Not true. Oh, if the shoe fits, wear it. If New York's in debt, why should Virginia bear it? Uh, our debts are paid, I'm afraid. Don't tax the South, because we got it made in the shade. In Virginia, we plant seeds in the ground. We create. You just want to move our money around. This financial plan is an outrageous demand, and it's too many damn pages for any man to understand. Stand with me in the land of the free. Pray to God we never see Hamilton's candidacy. Look, when Britain taxed our tea, we got frisky. Imagine what gon' happen when you try to tax our whiskey.
4: Thank you, Secretary Jefferson. Secretary Hamilton, your response. Thomas, that was a real nice declaration. Welcome to the present. We're running a real nation. Would you like to join us? Stay mellow. Doing whatever the hell it is you doing, Monticello. If we assume the debts, the union. Gets A new line of credit, a financial diuretic. How do you not get it? If we're regressive and competitive, the union gets a boost. You'd rather give it a sedative? A civic lesson from a slaver. Hey, neighbor, your debts are paid because you don't pay for labor. We plant seeds in the South. We create and keep ranting.
2: We know who's really doing the planting. Some scholars point out the ironic tension between the musical's diverse cast, you know, the which is a strength, obviously, and what they see as an overly... Whitewash script. And so Northwestern University's Leslie Harris writes in Historians on Hamilton that there were the enslaved in colonial New York, and none of them are portrayed in Hamilton. There's also a large free Black community in the city where African-Americans did serious work towards abolition. So to her, excluding these narratives from the show is a missed opportunity. This quote, I think, from her is rather worth noting. Quote, does the hip-hop soundscape of Hamilton effectively drown out the violence and trauma and sounds of slavery that people who looked like the actors in the play might actually have experienced at the time of the nation's birth. There perhaps were choices that
1: could have been made to um, to focus on that somewhat. For example, perhaps instead of focusing quite so much on the self-revelation of Hamilton's infidelity and um, and the attempt to blackmail him, uh, instead to perhaps have the, oh, look, this founding father had feet of clay as well, could have been around issues of race, maybe. Uh, And that would have been an interesting way to, to address it. But again, one of the metaphorical strengths of Hamilton is that by having all people of color playing these roles that were white men. What it does visually on the stage as you're watching it is that it has all of those people of color who are sort of, it's almost like the ghosts of all of those people who go unmentioned are there with that character every minute that they're on stage because you are reminded They are only there because all of these people of color slaved and then, you know, were further oppressed between then and
2: now. So this is what survives and the brilliance of it is not only the artistry, but the fact that young people, children, are fascinated by history and are seeing themselves represented on stage or on now a TV screen. And what's more powerful than that? What's more valuable than that to get a whole new generation of people who feel left out suddenly invested in a country that is deeply flawed and imperfect. And if this is, can do that, then, then I'm willing to let the, uh, the imperfections slide and I think that's, uh, that's how it's going to really hold up over, over time.
1: Yeah, I'm actually much more uh, willing to let the imperfection slide in in this case than with the the um, debate over in the heights, which has emerged this summer. Which is interesting as we're talking about these debates with regard to Hamilton, that the movie version of In the Heights uh, has also received a lot of criticism, and and there I'm less, I'm far less sympathetic because. Uh, you know, it is a more literal production, whereas Hamilton is intended to be this sort of metaphorical, unrealistic um, uh, thing. And the reality is, is that Lin-Manuel Miranda's Washington Heights is a very not uh, not black version of Puerto Rican and Dominican in particular uh, society. And That lack of representation, I think, is is um, is harder to explain away uh, for Miranda now, um, uh, as he's criticized for it this this summer.
2: Yeah, I think he's been on sort of an apology tour since twenty twenty when Hamilton began its run on Disney .Plus, he, I think, to his credit, answered these critics who who came out and said, "You why aren't you?" Doing more with slavery or the free black community, or um, acknowledging that Hamilton himself was a uh, slaveholder and he owned it and he talked about it and and acknowledged it, and I and I notice he's having to do the same thing with within the heights, but as you say, it's a it's a different production altogether. But uh, that also shows you how quickly things change um, between twenty fifteen when the musical comes out and then you know in 2020 when it's on Disney Plus he's already had to really acknowledge all that criticism and remember um there's an entire play called the haunting of Lynnwell the haunting of Lynn Manuel Miranda that is just entirely about critiquing him for not being forthright about Hamilton or the founding fathers and I don't think a lot of people saw that play I mean Tony Morrison actually invested in the play <laughs> but it didn't it, it was right. it didn't resonate I think but uh, it does show you that there was always this this the strain of, of uh, criticism from the outset
1: you're the one that had to be as you said made to eat your vegetables so what did you think about uh, these two what are your recommendations
2: well believe it or not I recommend them both both. I recommend 1776 because it was such a popular and important, it just has an artifact. It was an important and popular musical and we can't see the musical very often unless there's some local theaters doing it, but um, on the film will at least give you the, the basis of it. And I think you need to see it just for the context we just, we laid out, which is Nixon in Vietnam and, also um it it maybe there would not have been a a Hamilton without 1776 because I even noticed that there's some interviews with Lin Manuel Miranda where he talks about 1776 and even converses with some of the old cast members and he does acknowledges how important that musical was for him so uh while I didn't enjoy 1776 as much as Hamilton I think I I recommend seeing it because it does inspire so many other things. And of course, Hamilton, I feel bad for having, being forced to watch it or just not, I knew I was going to see it someday (laughs) and I'm glad I did, but I was blown away in every single aspect of it. Time flew. It was exciting. It was funny. It was gorgeous to see. And, and I couldn't have been more wrong about avoiding it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it really does. I mean, as as people say, it holds up, you know, going back and, and watching it uh, again. Uh, it definitely uh, holds up, and and I would recommend it to those who uh, maybe had the good fortune of seeing the show, either on Broadway or at the Public, or when it was in has been in its um, touring productions across the country, and then maybe have thought, oh well, it's not worth it then to get sort of Disney Plus for a month so that I can watch this, but it really is if you're a fan because what was a great pleasure for me was to be able to see the close up facial expressions of people who I had only seen uh, from the distance of my seat uh, in the orchestra the first time, and then in the second row of the, of the mezzanine uh, the second time. And so being able to see that up close uh, I think was, uh, was really, was really great. And also we haven't actually talked much about who is in it, but, virtually every person who's in it has gone on to do some really interesting stuff. Leslie Odom Jr., who won the Tony for Best Actor for playing Aaron Burr. He has just recently been in uh, Night in Miami, which where he really does a, a wonderful performance there as well and has been doing other stuff. And And I mean, really, everybody, you just go down the line and so many people are doing some really, really uh, interesting things. And um, and it shows just how strong this combined cast was uh, at the bit, you know, that 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 launched this uh, this production. 1776. Yeah. You know, it's it's 1776. So, you know, there's a couple of really great numbers in it, but boy, is it a musical of another era. And when I said way back at the beginning, or, you know, we talked about how, you know, Oliver won best, the musical Oliver won best picture sandwiched in between In the Heat of the Night and Midnight Cowboy, (laughs) which I think is just, if there's, I'm not sure that there's any more sharp, indication of the cultural turmoil of that period than than that. But then also to know that Hair was beaten out by 1776 for the Tony for Best Musical, to think not so much about how 1776 beat it out, but rather that both of those shows were on Broadway running at the same time. And I think that that really gives us that indication of sort of the old guard shifting towards a new guard that is, in fact, what then results in us having Hamilton, you know, all those decades later. We'll leave it to our, our listeners as to whether they'll watch 1776, but certainly like everybody else on the planet...
2: Uh, it's pretty safe to be recommending Hamilton. Audience, are you old guard or are you new guard? Let's end it there. <laughs> uh, well, this is our you know, last episode on the American Revolution. We'll have two episodes coming up on journalism and revolution.
1: We hope you join us then.
2: This episode was written by Leah Parody and Brian Krim. It was also edited by Leah, and the theme music was written by Mike Patterson. Check out our website livesagreedupon.com for more on each episode, including clips and links to the films discussed. Be sure to subscribe to get this excellent free content in your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at agreedupon That's at Lies underscore upon.